Sunday night we're in a, a series, 15 Protestant Truths About the Death of God the Son. This is part six. And so each week we've picked a few different aspects of the accomplishments of Christ's death on the cross. I mean, I think we all kind of get the picture. Jesus died on the cross. We have forgiveness of sins, and that's precious. It's not untrue at all. It's wonderfully true. It's just not complete. There's so much tied up in a doctrine of the atonement. And so I thought that we would take three or four months on Sunday night and go through this. Tonight the topic is, and these are long titles because they kind of include the point that we'll be studying... Jesus died on the cross to become a sympathetic high priest instead of a condemning high priest and give us confident access into the presence of a holy and just God. That's not the sermon. That's just the title of the sermon. I have two texts that I want to look at tonight. They're both from the book of Hebrews. First is Hebrews chapter 10, 19 to 21. Do you have that in your notes? Okay, let's read it aloud, okay, and in unison... Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the household of God, dot, 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 and you kind of, you kind of pick it up at the beginning of a thought, and what I wanted to emphasize was the first part, access by a new and living way. The next test... I'll read to you Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That's the clue. Passed through the heavens thinking of the ascension of Jesus. So Christ's priesthood is what he's going to be talking about. So it's related to his death on the cross, but distinct from. He's passed through the heavens. He's ascended. And so now begins his unfinished work, interceding for you, for me, day by day at the right hand of the Father. The clue is that phrase, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So, so there's, there's enough that would make us discouraged. There's enough that can make us feel tired, weary, guilty, unworthy, any number of things. Don't, don't do that. Hold fast. For we do not have a high priest. And that holding fast, holding fast our confession is tied to verse 15 by that word for. Don't give up. Hold fast. Because for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So there's the clue. What would make people not hold fast to confession would be this this sense of weakness, inability, unworthiness. Hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So don't give up. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. The important words are tempted as we are. Yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near. So don't give up because of weakness. Hold fast with Confidence. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in, in time of need. And so, Lord, be with us now as we look at your word. 
more than we know, everyone in this room needs a sympathetic high priest. And so I just pray that uh, truths that we know would become precious to us, not because of any brilliance of the teacher, but because of your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the previous message, last Sunday night, we just started unpacking the very precious, uh, potent truth that Jesus died on the cross. This was the subject last Sunday night. Jesus died on the cross to abolish the earthly priesthood by becoming our eternal high priest. And the book of Hebrews tells us in three carefully chosen words that Christ died on the cross once for all. We studied that last week. And those three words demolish the earthly priesthood. In both of our opening texts for tonight's study, there's a word used, a very important word. It's used to describe the kind of access. What kind of access do we all now have to the presence of our holy, just God? And the word that the writer of Hebrews uses twice is confidence. In the Hebrews 10 text, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, that's 1019. And then the Hebrews 4 text, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And apparently, uh, each of those texts bears truth that properly understood and, and properly appreciated will, will calm and assure the heart of the one approaching God, even when that person feels... As the writer said, weakness. Even if that person is a very guilty sinner. Even if that person senses his or her own unworthiness in some unbearable kind of sense. Confidence. But it's not just a matter of sort of thinking positive thoughts about God. Don't be negative, be up. Goodness knows the church wants everything to be up these days. God help us if we ever get over just how amazing this mystery is that we, tonight, can not only approach God, but approach him with confidence. I mean, that's important to remember when we so peacefully, in a little while, we sing all these love songs to Jesus. And how much we love him and how wonderful he is and how we want to see his face. Open the eyes of my heart. And we sing it with our eyes closed. But open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. And we have this access to God. And I'm saying that's a miracle. It's a miracle that we can approach God. This is what we want to study tonight. There are... Two sources, I won't be long, two sources for a sinner's confident approach to a just and holy God. And you and I need to know these two things. We need to know them every day we live our lives for Jesus in this present evil age. Because there are surely enough things that are designed, designed just by the spirit of the age to rob us of confidence in coming Coming, approaching our God. And so, let's build our faith on 
two foundations that are designed to help us keep our confidence. We're going to look at two. First, point number one. Our confidence is founded on knowing, is another long point, our confidence is founded on knowing the whole Old Testament system of sacrifice was custom made to point to the grandeur and power of Christ's coming death for our sins on the cross. I need to unpack that a bit, obviously. If I were to ask you, what happened when the children of Israel came and stopped at Mount Sinai? Almost everyone in the room would say, well, the Ten Commandments. That's where they got the Ten Commandments. And, and that's true. But it's only one of the things that God gave them there at the base of that mountain. And that part didn't take very long. What took all the time was the second thing that the children of Israel received at the base of that mountain. And what they received were detailed instructions on how to construct what would come to be called the tabernacle. That's what took the most time at the foot of that mount. The whole process seemed just shrouded in in mystery. God, if if you have a a Bible reading program where you're reading through the whole Bible chronologically, and, you know, there you're sitting right now, and you know what's coming, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and, and you're just praying that there'll be something edifying in there for you. And as you read... You get all these instructions. Exodus 25:40, where God speaks to the people, giving them these instructions about the building of the tabernacle, and says, And see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. So everything, the minutiae of detail, everything had to be done not as they might want it done, but exactly the way God wanted it done, the exact dimensions. And you've read those instructions. The exact kinds of wood, the exact fabrics, the exact colors, chapter after chapter after chapter, all spelled out, nothing left to chance. And maybe as you're reading it, you stop and you start to think, what difference can it make? Of course, you wouldn't say that out loud to God. Why? What difference could it possibly make whether a piece of fabric in the tabernacle was blue or green? Wool or linen? Whether the poles were plated with gold or with silver? And God doesn't give any answers to those things. He just gives painstakingly detailed instructions. We don't get the answer to any of those questions until 1,400 years later. And then, in a burst of sudden revelation, we see with the coming of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross why God was so unbearably meticulous with all of those ancient tabernacle details. Let me read you Hebrews 8, 5. 
the priests, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything, and now he's quoting that verse I just read you from Exodus. See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. It might not be clicking yet, but it should soon. All those things in the tabernacle, including, as we saw last week, the priesthood itself, all those things were only imitations. They were only copies, the text says, of the real dwelling place of Almighty God. Someone sent me a card not that long ago. And on the front of it, it said that I was a model preacher. And then when you open up the card on the inside, it said, quotation marks, model. A small imitation of the real thing. (laughs) But model is a good description for our purposes here. That's a very good way to picture the way all of the Old Testament sacrificial system worked. It was never intended to be permanent. I mean, the Bible tells us this explicitly, Hebrews 10, 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. The Old Testament, in spite of what used to be taught in dispensational theology, the Old Testament is obsolete. It is not coming back. It is not ever coming back. Obsolete is the word the writer uses. Hebrews 8.13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to, these are New Testament words, it's vanishing away. Vanish away. So the whole Old Testament system the one given by God at the foot of Mount Sinai, it was only a copy, it was only a shadow, only a model of what would one day be fleshed out and completed in Jesus Christ. That's why we don't talk about covenant A and covenant B. We don't talk about a first covenant and a second covenant. We talk about an old covenant and a new covenant. Pastor Don, I've been listening, and you still haven't told us why God was so fussy. You said you were going to get to it. All those instructions, exactly to the detail. All right. So that is the model. That is the pattern. It's obsolete now with the coming of Jesus. Why all the fastidious attention to detail? The tabernacle from the Old Covenant had to be exactly the way God designed it, because one day, about 1,400 years later, our eternal salvation was also going to be exactly on God's terms rather than ours. And the model was designed to teach all of us, as we read all those picky details, the model was designed to teach us You don't get to decide how you're going to make your approach to God. Not under the new covenant. There is no other name given unto heaven whereby men must be saved. Mankind, 
especially proud, sinful mankind, has always liked to think that he can design his own pathway to God. This is the hallmark of false religion and bad religion. It, it comes on our terms rather than following the exact pattern laid down in God's own revelation. So, picture the children of Israel coming to the base of Mount Sinai. They have been gloriously set free by grace plus nothing from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, all the provision and protection, gloriously set free by grace plus nothing. Now, now begins their training in following their redeeming God. It's like us. When were you saved? Pick the date. You repented, you acknowledged Christ, you heard somehow, made him your Savior, your Lord, or the New Testament order, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here are these people, delivered by grace, and now begins their training in following and worshiping their redeeming God. And right away, first on the agenda, God does two things, commandments. They learn that freedom doesn't mean freedom to live however they would like. And second, in the exact instructions about the construction of the tabernacle, they learn they are not free to approach God however they might like. You would get the impression, wouldn't you, from looking at the way we design church services, how do you like it? Traditional, liturgical, contemporary? We got, we got your thing. We got your thing. You would get the impression from that that Worship is kind of democratic. How do you like to approach God? How do you like to approach God? And so they start to see, first with the Ten Commandments, they are not free to live as they please. Secondly, with the instructions of the tabernacle, they are not free to approach God as they please. Well, all that's well and good, Pastor Don, but what does it have to do with me having confidence in my approach? And the writer of Hebrews answers that very question in our text. The Hebrews 10, 19 to 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Interesting, the way immediately that he opened through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the household of God, and then he continues with more argument. I gather that's a point where the notes flip over to the other side. Or look at these words from the very same writer, Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. <clears throat> but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent. See, remember I said the tabernacle and how that's the model of our approaching. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus securing, that's a great word, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more, it's a how much more argument, 
will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, there's a ton of stuff in there. But the point is, if God honored the temporary, passing, shadowy copy of the Old Testament sacrificial system, which the writer of Hebrews specifically tells us never had the power to remove human sin, if God honored that, then how much more will he honor the death of his own son who died for our sins? That's the argument. That's the root of confidence. If God forgave Amos when he brought a goat to the priest to be slaughtered, and Amos trusted in that, how much more can you rest in his forgiveness when God the Son bled and died on the cross as a sacrifice for your sin? Rest in that confidence, the writer says. Rest in that confidence. This is such a significant event that God takes great pains to announce this inauguration. That word opened literally means inauguration. That's the idea behind Hebrews 10, 19, and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. There came a time when that old copy, that old tent, that old tabernacle was folded up and put away in the plan of God. It didn't instantly die in human religion. The change didn't happen overnight in this world. In some religions, the old system or some variant of it is still being used with no saving effect apart from faith in Jesus Christ. But in Father God's eyes, there was an inaugural launching of the final sacrifice. Much the way we would celebrate the launching of a new ocean liner. Only God does things on a bigger scale. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that this new and living way to God was opened, it says, through the veil of his flesh. When the veil of Jesus' flesh was torn on the cross, at that very moment, you know the story, at that very moment, another veil, the veil that partitioned off the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, it was ripped from top to bottom. Most people from movies they've seen that deal with the death of Christ or videos, most people think that when Jesus breathed his last and gave up his spirit, all sorts of manifestations took place. If you remember, you ever saw the passion of the Christ and the way the theater just kind of shakes with all sorts of special effects the moment Jesus dies on the cross. Dark sky, earthquake. And that's kind of true, and yet kind of not. I want you to look at me with a, a really important little passage of Scripture from Matthew 27, 50 to 53. Matthew 27, 50 to 53. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. So there, Jesus dies. And behold, 
Behold is, is the writer's way of saying, now, now notice what happens first. That's what he's saying. Jesus yielded up his spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and rocks were split, and tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Bodies, not spirits. These aren't ghosts. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city, into Jerusalem, and appeared to many. Wow. So, Jesus dies, yields up his spirit. Silence. Jesus dies. Nothing. Next, veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. Suddenly, earthquakes, signs, wonders, bodies of Old Testament saints temporarily raised. The signs didn't happen at the moment of Jesus' death. The signs happened when the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. At that very moment, at that moment, the termination of the old temporary system of approaching God and the launching of the new happened. God was inaugurating something. Something really special. And the change is so powerful. Listen, the change is so powerful, God uses his Old Testament saints who lived and struggled so long under that old system. God uses the bodies of those saints to actually come out of their graves to demonstrate the superiority of the new covenant and to celebrate it. That's amazing. We don't have any record, but if you could have spoke to them, they would have said, this is better. That's the first source of confidence. But there's another. We're almost done. Point number two, our confidence is founded on the assurance that Christ always treats us sympathetically when we come to the throne of grace in his name. Is there anything better to hear in all the world than that? Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That's his ascension. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. I already talked about that. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, in view of this, let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. Find grace to help in time of need. Sympathizing, of course, is the opposite of criticizing. We live with so many critics when we don't do things quite up to their expectations that we almost expect criticism from everyone all the time. It's, it's sort of a... Criticizing is a, is a way to exercise pride. A critic. Sympathizing is the opposite of criticizing. And, and the writer is saying 
that when dealing with repentant sinners, that's the important word, when dealing with repentant sinners, listen to me. When dealing with repentant sinners, Jesus never, never criticizes. He sympathizes. Like we ought to just be able to go home happy right now. When dealing with repentant sinners, Jesus is not your critic. You can come to him because he's not your critic. He sympathizes. This is where the writer says, this is the second source of my confidence. I want to tell you the most beautiful thing I know about Jesus. I have nothing better to offer you than this. And if you remember this one truth all your life, you will spend more time near the throne of God than away from it. Here it is. Jesus always feels with us. He never feels against us. And there is nothing the devil wants you to forget more than that truth. There is nothing the devil wants you to forget more than that truth. This is ground for the most wonderful, peace-generating confidence in prayer. Here, here is the peace from the accusation of the devil. Here is the peace from the limitations of your own imperfections. Jesus is always sympathetic to repentant sinners. Always. And then the writer says, why? And he tells us, Jesus didn't just die on the cross in an instant. That he lived life in this world for about 33 years. We talk about the vicarious sacrifice of Christ. It would be better to talk about the vicarious humanity of Christ. His whole life is saving in that respect. Because the 33 years relate to a sympathetic high priest. His, his heavenly session is what we call the ministry of Jesus right now. The Bible says he lived those years just the same way you live yours and the same way I live mine. He endured the full force of temptation, probably in a way that you and I never will because he never caved into it. it when you resist temptation, you know its power far more than when you give in. It's like, when do you know the strength of the wind, walking into it or walking with it? Jesus was tempted the way you and I are tempted. He experienced loneliness. He experienced pain. He experienced rejection in a way no one else ever will. He lived 33 years and knew how hard life can be. And when the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest, he means to say very clearly that Jesus feels for us. He remembers Here's, here's, here's what I like to do. This isn't in your notes at all. I'm, we're, you can put them away. We're done, basically. I don't remember where I read it, but I have found it helpful for years. This may shock you, but I find there are times when I go to Jesus and I actually have to confess sin. And here's what I do. And I think it's biblical. Like, I don't think it's just mental fancy. I think it relates to this text. 
I go, I go to the Lord, and I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, Don, you you should have known better. You've walked with Jesus for 53 years. How could you have said that? How could you have dealt with this that way? How could you have been so proud? And Lord, you know, I, I just. I'm sorry, I need to bring this to you again. I'm sorry for the way I failed you. And when I do, just like you, there's always, man, that's, that's several times this week. I wonder if he's getting sick of me. Like, I know where those thoughts come from, but, but they still come. When I go and I confess my sins, I always picture Jesus So the man Christ Jesus, Paul calls him that, the man, body, the man Christ Jesus ascended at the right hand of the Father. I take that to mean that he also has a memory, right? I don't want to get too mystical. Jesus remembers his life here on earth. And I like to think that when I go and I confess my sin and my weakness, Jesus remembers what it was like when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness for all that time. And when Don Horbin comes and fails in the face of temptation, Jesus, he never did, but he can remember what it was like to be tempted, and he sympathizes with me. And if you do that, it will keep you coming with your sin to find grace, mercy, in our time of need. Best thing in the world. With repentant sinners, Jesus always feels with us. He never feels against us. And all God's thankful people said, let's pray.